All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Todd. I'm one of the elders here at Anthem, and uh, we are continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount, so we will be in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to open your Bibles there, we will be covering verses 38 through 48 this morning. As you turn there, I have a quote uh, on the screen that I think will help inform our time and give us some instruction here from a guy named Gerhard Ford on a book he wrote called On Being a Theologian of the Cross. And he said this, he said, the Christian life is not an exodus from vice to virtue, but rather from virtue to grace. Most of us, if we were asked, we would define or we would come to some kind of idea that the Christian life is basically moving from when you stopped doing all the bad stuff and when you started doing some good stuff. Like most people, if you just ask them on the street, what does Christianity teach? They would say, be a better person. Become better. Stop doing all those bad things. That's what Christianity expects of you. Stop being bad. Start being good. Move away from your vices. Admit them as vices. And move beyond those to virtue. Now that would be a good step. And Christianity does teach (laughs) that you should stop sinning and move towards righteousness. But the essence of Christianity is not just stop doing bad and start doing good. What Ford here points out, and it's important, is the Christian life is not just merely exiting out of all your vices to virtue, but rather from virtue to grace, coming to the point where you realize even your best can't accomplish what God requires. Christianity is not just agreeing with him that sin is bad. Everybody looks around and sees sin and says it's bad. Everybody does that. And some people call things sins that you don't, but everybody is online mad about something. Everybody thinks that there's something that should be repented of, that should be stopped, and that should be moved on to something different. But Christianity says the essence of what Christianity is is not just becoming a better person, but realizing that your best cannot accomplish perfection. And the essence of Christianity is grace, moving from just beyond the best thing that you can offer God and realizing that the only thing you can offer God is faith in Jesus. And that's the only thing he wants you to give him. That's the thing he primarily expects from you. Now, to do that, you don't give up your virtues. You don't abandon virtue. He's not saying that virtues don't matter. He's just saying that it's a step further than that. And that's our big idea this morning. Grace goes beyond. Grace goes beyond just fulfilling your obligations. Do you know who should do what they're supposed to do? Everybody. (laughs) That's not unique to Christianity. Did you know that? Everybody should do what they're supposed to do. That's why it's what you're supposed to do. Everybody should do that. That's not a uniquely Christian thing. Now, Christians should do what they're supposed to do, not because it makes them Christian, but because they're a human person, and everybody should do that. Christians are unique in that they understand that it's grace that saves, and their faith is in what Jesus does, and that's why they do their best to be virtuous, to live well. Look at the first few verses of our passage, Matthew 38, or, uh, 5, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus says, you've heard this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've probably heard that too, right? You've heard that phrase. And when people use it, they usually mean something primitive, something barbaric. A a time uh, in some ancient past where ancient descendants of ours used to not know how to handle themselves like people, and so they would do this eye-for-an-eye thing because they were, they were barbaric and primitive people. That's not true. First of all, that's not true. The very first man, Adam, 
was not some primate barbarian. Adam, the very first man who ever lived, created by God, was a poet. He wasn't, ug, ug, me, Tarzan, you, Jane, I, Adam, you, Eve, come, cave, we make peoples. He was a poet. The first time, the first recorded words in the Bible that a human ever said was Adam when he saw Eve. He said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I shall call you woman, for you were taken out of man. Adam was a poet. When was the last time you wrote a poem? You were throwing shade at our primitive ancestors. When was the last time you wrote a poem, let alone a good one? <laughs> you, remember, I, I, you remember being in high school when you wrote poems? <laughs> yeah, that's probably the, I hope that's the last time any of you wrote a poem. Because <laughs> most of you are not good enough to still be doing it. <laughs> I know I wasn't. I, I'd be so embarrassed. If you trotted out, if you marched out some of those high school poems of mine, I would turn into a puddle <laughs> right in front of you right now. I'd be like, no. Adam, the first man, was not barbaric. He was a poet, first of all. He didn't know the difference between the good mac and cheese and the store brand. He's not refined like we are. But he knew the difference between a man and a woman, which is something we apparently can't get our head around. The very first man was not primitive, some barbaric thing. He understood things. He was a poet. And eye for an eye was not something that we adopted by observing the gorillas. It's not just like animal nature. Eye for an eye, when Jesus says this, he says, you've heard it was said, eye for an eye. Those are the words of God, Exodus 21. God handed down that law to his people. It wasn't some barbaric thing they invented themselves. It was something that came down, revelation, down. And why did God give them that rule, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Was it because he's a mean and barbaric God who likes to see people punch back? No, he was giving them grace. He was putting a rule in place to stop the escalation of violence. Because before eye for an eye, it was life for an eye. You gouge my wife's eye out, I will kill you. That ramps things up a bit, right? You, you bruise my kid's shin, I will murder your whole village. Like it, that, that's a jump in escalation. Now that seems pretty severe, but, but you've seen this thing happen before. You've seen people just by doing life, bump into somebody in a public place, and immediately this person turns this into like a brawl. <laughs> like, what, you want to go? It's like, what, I was, I'm sorry we bumped shoulders? I don't know <laughs> why it was my responsibility to move, but do we have to like fist fight? Do we have to get into fisticuffs? Do we have to tussle? <laughs> do we have to do that? No, because things ramp up, but that's the way sin works. It ratchets itself up. You do this, I take it to the next level. I honk my horn, you flip me off. I get out the car, you pull a gun. It just escalates. Sin naturally escalates. And so God put a rule in place to say, no, no more escalation. When things happen, we're going to weigh these things out and do it in proportion to what happened. If you accidentally kill my goat, there should be some kind of proportion to that. So eye for an eye, too. There's a rule. And so that's why the third thing here is that it was done in front of a civil magistrate. You took your complaint. If somebody wronged you, you took it to somebody else to weigh it out. Because we are not the best judges of figuring out proportionally what's been done to us. When somebody wrongs us, it carries a lot of weight. Because they can't believe they would do that to me of all people. Have you met me? I have, and I like me a lot. And I can't believe you would do that to me. But when somebody else does something, like, I can't believe they would do that. Or when we do it and they accuse us of something, it's like, what? what? I did? You're blowing this out of proportion. Because we immediately 
ratchet down our own sins and we immediately don't see it. So we need somebody else to step in and be like, here's what happened. Here's, they hear the evidence. They, they hear it and then they give a decision that's actually in line with proportion to what happened. Because people should pay back what they owe. And God was putting rules in place that would allow actual justice instead of this ratcheting up of sin on top of sin that just keeps going and going until people die. And after the, the people would make their decision, responsible people would pay what they owe. We see this even in the New Testament, Romans 13, verse 8. Paul says it clearly, simply, straightforward to Christians. Have it up on a slide for you, Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. Don't owe people stuff. That's, that's going from vice to virtue. If you owe people stuff, that's a vice. You shouldn't owe people things. Pay them what you owe. If you owe your parents respect, give that to them. They're owed it. They're your parents. If you're married, you made promises to that person. You owe them something. Give them what you owe. That's just basic human decency. If you owe people actual money, if you owe rent, do your best to pay it because you owe it. You said you would. Pay your debts. Don't owe on anything. Don't owe people stuff. But remember, Christianity is not just doing the bare minimum. Everybody should pay what they owe. Everybody should. Christianity is not a religion of just paying what you owe. It's giving what you don't have to. It's going beyond. It's giving more than what's required of you. It's not just doing your duty. It's going beyond it. Because remember, the big idea this morning is grace goes beyond. Grace is not just fulfilling your obligations. It's going beyond that. It's going further than what's required of you. So while eye for an eye was meant to keep things from escalating in the wrong direction, grace is not just even stopping that. That would be a good thing. If God put something in that just stopped that process, that would be, we'd look up and say thank you. But grace isn't just stopping the escalation of going this direction. Grace is starting something spiraling in the right direction. Grace is trying to escalate things in the right direction. Start going above and beyond, doing more than what you have to. Imagine a world that's anchored in that as opposed to just taking the, the ratcheting up the sin to the next level instead of ratcheting up the grace and going further in the right direction. Look at verses 40 through 42. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Grace moves beyond just getting even and goes to giving more than what's required. It moves from doing the bare minimum to thinking through what's the most I could do here. Not just what's the bare minimum that somebody expects from me, but going beyond that. It moves from have to to get to. How many of you woke up this morning and said, I have to go to church this morning? Some of you kids maybe did because your parents made you. <laughs> I have to go to church. I have to. No, you get to go to church. This is a privilege to get to come and sit with people who love Jesus, to sing songs to him, and to hear the voice next to you singing the same song to the same God, to know that you're not alone, to know that our God is glorified, that he's getting the credit he deserves, that we are together gathered to pay him what we owe to him, which is everything, to give him glory and honor and to look up and say thank you with other people who are doing the same thing. Grace goes beyond. Grace wants to give more than has to. It wants to think in terms of get to, not just have to. But, but listen here, grace still requires wisdom. God has not set up, Jesus did not say this so that you don't have to think through things anymore. It's not just like, well, somebody asked for my clothes, I guess. Like in between services, somebody said, Todd, I want your shirt. And be like, 
I just preached that. How could I not give him my shirt? I guess I'm preaching naked at second service. Like, no. <laughs> right, like Jesus himself said no. Like Jesus said no sometimes. Herod said, hey, do some party tricks. I heard you're good at those. He said no. The thief on the cross said, call down angels and save us. He said no. His own disciples said, hey, call down angels. Let's pick up our swords and fight this thing out. We can take, we can take them. He said no. Remember last week, Stan's sermon uh, from his portion on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He didn't say, let your yes be yes and your no be yes. He's like, I don't care. You just have to say yes to anything anybody ever asks you. So if you're on your way to pay your property taxes and somebody asks you for all your money, you're like, well, they asked and Jesus said to do it. So I guess I do that. And then I guess I get kicked out of my house. I don't know. I'm just at the mercy of what anybody else wants out of me. No, you're still going to have to have wisdom and faith and use your heads. Jesus has not made the world and given these commands in such a way as to keep you from having to think through stuff. There's going to be times where you don't go the second mile. You don't just have to do it every single time, but you do have to use wisdom. And what Jesus is saying here is that there's a simple rule. If, if they have to ask, you can say no. Parents, you should learn this. If your kids ask you something, it's because they have to. You're their authority. And if they ask, you can say no. If anybody has to ask you for permission to do something, you're allowed to say no. Don't feel like you have to say yes. Well, I'm a Christian. I have to say yes to everything. What Jesus is saying is you are a Christian. Say yes as much as you can. Say it as often as you can. Say yes. Be the kind of person who says yes. Think of our father who created Adam and Eve and put them in a garden surrounded by yes. Everywhere they looked, a world of yes. There was one no in a world full of yeses. That tree, yes. That tree, yes. That river, sure, why not? That one, okay. One tree, don't. They lived in a world full of yes. Be like your father who has a heart of yes. He wants to say yes. Parents want to say yes to your kids. If it's just a matter of indifference of like, can we jump on the thing? And you're like, well, I don't know. Like, but are you just annoyed by it? So you say no. Like I find myself saying no to stuff that when I think about it afterwards, I'm like, why am I saying no? Is it just out of convenience? Say yes as much as you can. Develop a habit, a default of just saying yes. Be gracious. If you can say yes, it's what they want. It doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt anything else. Just try and be a person who defaults towards yes because we're so already defaulted towards saying no. Override that. Try and say yes. Be like your father. Verses 43 and 44, it goes on to say, you've heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice he doesn't say, you've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, so I say stop doing that. Stop hating your enemies. That's dumb. Why you do that? <laughs> he didn't say that. No, he, he doesn't just say stop hating your enemies. That'd be a step in the right direction. But he doesn't say that. Grace goes beyond. What does he say? Love your enemies. Love them. Well, I don't want to, though, because they're my enemies. And that's not how these things work. <laughs> like when you have somebody on the other side shooting bullets at you, you're not like, I love you. <laughs> you're like, I don't, I don't understand even how I'm supposed to do that. But notice, like, he even presupposes that you have them. Like, being a Christian is not having no enemies. <laughs> not that anything anybody wants, I just agree with them because I don't like fights. <laughs> he assumes that you have enemies, but you love them while they remain opposed to you. And maybe even you remain opposed to them. There's a way to love a person and not agree with them. You don't have to just take their side or agree with whatever they're saying in order to love them. 
Jesus says, love your enemies, which means they are your enemies and you're loving them at the same time. A very difficult thing to do. But doesn't that, isn't that too far, Jesus? I mean, grace goes beyond, but is that, that's too much maybe. Like, love my enemies? I could see maybe just not hating them. Can we settle for not hating my enemies? Do I have to love them? Jesus says you need to love your enemies. It should make no difference to you. If an Amber Alert goes out and somebody's kids is missing, it shouldn't matter to you whose team they're on. It's not like, oh, well, whose kid is it? Because I don't want to know how much I should care. What team they're on? What, uh, what, which, what posts do they like on Facebook? Oh, they like that kind of stuff? Good luck finding your kid, man. I'm out. Loving your enemies means loving them while they disagree with you. Loving them so much that if they were to repent and change their mind, you would warmly accept them. You love them in a way that you want what's best for them. And if they would actually change, you would warmly embrace them. This, this is the opposite of holding a grudge. There's some people that are enemies and you like that you're, they're your enemies. You, don't, you get the privilege of not liking the way your parents treat you, but you also kind of enjoy it because if they change, you'd have to change too. You'd have to change the way you think and talk about that person. And you kind of prefer them being your enemies. You love that they're your enemies, but you don't love them as a person. We need to realize that in loving our enemies, God is not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done. And if that sounds too severe to love our enemies, look at what he says next in verse 45. Why does he say to do this? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you rather than just firing back a nasty response on Facebook. Stop and say, I think they're wrong. I'm going to pray for them. And then not fire back vitriol over the airwaves. I'm just going to pray for them. Why does he say to do that? So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. If you need to become a son, what does that make you in the first place? You're not one. But he says, do this so that you can become one. You're not a child of God. But if you do this, you'll be part of the kingdom. You'll be in the family. If you do these kind of things, you're showing that you're like the son I sent and you'll be welcomed in through him if you act this way. If we're not sons, what were we before? What are we if we're not already children? If we're not all children of God, then what are we? Look at Romans 5, 8 and 10. I have it up on the screen for you. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Who did Jesus die for? His enemies. He did not look down and find the best people and then die for them. He did not find those who had made the exodus from vice to virtue and say, I'm, I came to save the virtuous ones. The ones who don't need a savior are the ones I've come to save. The ones who've already figured it out. He came to die for his enemies. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is in that moment on this earth doing the very thing he's commanding us to do. He's loving his enemies by coming and in the process of living a perfect life that he will lay down for the people who remain his enemies to the point that they murder him. He dies for his very enemies for the people who are in the process of hating him and wanting to kill him. We were all enemies until God loves us. Because if he doesn't love his enemies, he doesn't love anybody. There's nobody left. God loves his enemies. And he commands us not even to go as far as he does. We, we, we're commanded to love our enemies, but most of our enemies are people who became enemies through some situation. Something happened, somebody said something, somebody went somewhere they shouldn't have, did something we didn't like. 
we said something they didn't like, and we became enemies. And God asked us to love those people that somehow we just couldn't figure out how to get along with. God goes further than that. Grace goes further by loving people who are enemies from the start. People who have always been enemies, he loves them. God goes further than he even asks us to go. And notice, God does not love his enemies by letting them win. He doesn't say, okay, fine, let's do it your way. Let's just let sin run the world. He doesn't love his enemies by letting them win. He defeats them. God will defeat every last one of his enemies. All of his enemies will be defeated, either by conversion or by condemnation. You will be defeated by God. You will either lay down your arms and walk to the other side, wave the white flag, and in faith say, I've tried it my way, I'm on your team now. Or you will continue fighting to the very end and lose anyways. God will defeat every last one of his enemies. He prefers conversion. The reason why we are all still here 2,000 years after the fact that Jesus died is because he's still trying to convert people. He wants people to lay down their arms and join him rather than experience condemnation. Look at the second part of verse 45. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. All of us were born evil and unjust, and yet he sent his rain. And for some, that grace converted them. And now they live in a mixed world of evil and good, of just and unjust. We live in a mixed world, and yet God keeps sending his rain. He just keeps sending rain and goodness. You wake up and the sun's out, and he sends his warmth down. He sends life. He sends water to give life and vibrance to a world that is still full of evil and unjustness. We look around and we find injustice, and God still sends rain on this world. We can do the same. We look out on Facebook and we see people still being stupid, and we can't believe it. How are they still stupid? How are they, how are they still doing this? And yet, we can continue to send sun and rain in their direction. We can send love and grace out to people who don't deserve it. Romans 2, verse 4, says it well. Paul writing says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you just take it for granted that he's so kind to everything? Look around. How good is God? Do you presume on these things not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What's the thing that God wants to use to convert people, to lead them to repentance? His kindness. God is at war with his enemies, and his favorite weapon is his kindness. And his favorite means of defeating his enemies is by turning them into allies. He continues to send rain on those who don't deserve it in a last-ditch plea to beg them to come over to his side. And so he just keeps showering them with kindness and goodness and tries to win them over that way. We are not like that, if you haven't noticed. If you've been on Twitter, which is like the embodiment of wrath, I think they made Twitter just so that one of the seven deadly sins would have a place to go and hang out. Twitter is, whew, people say stuff to people there that they would never say to people in person. Oh, we're not like that. We like people who like us. I follow people on Twitter who like me. Or I follow people on Twitter I don't like so I can blow them up. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what Twitter's for. But we like people who like us. We, like, we, we enjoy people who enjoy the things we like. We like forming our tribes and our teams. Look at what Jesus says. It's same, no different back then. Verse 46 to 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Who doesn't do that? Why would you expect to be congratulated? Who doesn't do that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Don't even like the people that you look down on do that? Tax collectors have tax collectors club. <laughs> like they hang out too. Like everybody does that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Who doesn't do that? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Don't people who hate God like each other and they have hate God clubs? <laughs> like if, who doesn't do that? Everybody does that. So what we have done, because we're so smart and modern and sophisticated, is we have traded that old barbaric eye for an eye for the modern high for a high. <laughs> we greet those who greet us. Hi. Hey. I like you. I like you too. And that's it. We've traded this old barbaric way of maintaining justice for a new form that's very sophisticated. And we say hi for a high. I like those who like me. I lend money to people who I expect to pay me back. Why would I lend money to somebody who can't pay me back? That's stupid. I don't invite people over that I don't expect to go over to their house a month later. Why would I do that? I'm losing money here. I can't just have people over for dinner all the time. We like those who like us. We love those who love us. And even by our own low standard, like if that's our standard, <laughs> it's like I'm nice to people who are nice to me. That's our new rule. That's our golden rule for living life. And even by that low standard, we fall short. It's the lowest bar imaginable. Just be nice to people who like you. Imagine if Jesus said that, if that was his standard. He came down and took on flesh just to say, you know what, you should be nice to people who are already nice to you. And you're like, okay. And then we can't even do that. Have you ever just not reciprocated because you just weren't feeling it? You're just in a bad mood. <laughs> so somebody smiles at you and you're like, I don't feel like smiling today. <laughs> and so you just don't because you just, you're so petty. You can't even keep that low bar. Even if that was the admittance to heaven. It was like, just be nice to people who are nice to you. You don't even have to be nice to people who are jerks. I'm not even asking you to do that. Just be nice to people you already like. And you're like, well, some days I don't like my wife. Or it's, you know, it's like, what? You can't even be nice to people who already like you? People who are already on board, you have to create infight and stir up division just to do it. But God's gracious, so he certainly takes that into consideration, right? God knows that we can't do everything perfectly, but does God allow us to take life on a pass-fail basis? Does God grade on a curve? Does God say, well, like, hey, I get it. Nobody's perfect. Come over to my house. <laughs> Is that how God works? Look at verse 48, the last verse in our passage. Jesus, after saying this, suspecting perhaps that that may be where your brain runs to, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So no. God, there is no curve. There is perfect or not. Which means that if you got question two wrong on the test, there's no amount of questions you can get right that could ever get up to 100% ever again. If you missed question four, you're done. I don't care how well you do for the rest of your life. You can get every rest of the questions right. But perfection is no longer possible. If you get a B plus, 4.0 is out. It's impossible now. No one is more gracious than God, and no one has higher standards. What would you expect Jesus to do? <laughs> Jesus is the son of God. You want him to take on flesh, come down here and say, like, actually, God doesn't really care that much. It's 80%. I'm actually kind of cool with that. We're good. Because, I mean, who could be perfect? Is that what you want, is that what you want out of Jesus to come down and do that? No, because grace has to maintain high standards. Otherwise, it's not grace. Do you understand? Grace requires high standards. Some of you think you're gracious, but you're not. You just have low standards for people. 
You don't, you're not gracious. You just don't expect much out of people. You just have this low bar that anybody can... It doesn't even require grace. Grace requires that somebody isn't meeting a standard. That's what grace is. Grace means that they can't get to where that you think they should be. And then you offer them grace even though they're not doing what you think they should. Grace requires high standards. Jesus has to love perfection. That's his father. What else would you want him to do? You don't want a Jesus who doesn't love perfection. You don't want a Jesus who sometimes sides with evil because he, or he winks at it because maybe it's not as bad as we all think. You want a God who loves justice and high standards because that makes him gracious because now he has perfection in mind which is in your heart too you want a better world than the one you have and if you're a christian you want a better life than the one you currently live you have a holy discontentment with yourself you're like why am i not more like jesus than i am I, that frustrates me god wants you to have a higher standard for yourself but he also wants grace to compel you to continue going and he looks down and he wants you to know that he has grace on those who fall short Grace is having high standards and working hard for those who don't. Grace is standing tall as much as you can in order to help those who fall short. Grace is wanting what's best for others and then giving your very best to help them, even when they're at their very worst. That is what God is like. He has high standards. He doesn't lower them so that we can all get into some fifth-rate heaven. He offers a place of perfection, a place you'd actually want to live, a world you'd want to be in, and then stoops down in order to pick people up so that they can actually go there. Grace goes beyond. That's the big idea this morning. Grace goes beyond. It doesn't just meet the bare minimum. It doesn't just satisfy the lowest common denominator. It reaches higher. And God is gracious, which means he has high standards, and he's willing to help those who don't live up to them. God doesn't wait until we're good enough to send the rain he doesn't wait until we've been good little boys and girls to send the sun and give us warmth. He sends those to win us over even though we're being bad. He doesn't wait for us to stop sinning before he saves us. He saves us while we're in the act of sinning. He saves those who are sinning. If you are a sinner this morning, I have good news for you. God loves you. He has sent his son to die for you even though you haven't asked him to. Maybe church is a have to for you this morning. Maybe somebody drug you here. Maybe you're here because somebody said that invited you and you didn't want to tell them no, so you came out of politeness. I have good news for you this morning. God wants to save you even though you don't want to be saved. You weren't looking for it. You weren't asking for it. You weren't trying to do better. But God loves you, and so he sends his son and his reign on you so that you might have the opportunity to look up and say thank you. Romans 5, 8 and 10, one more time as we transfer into a time of communion. God shows his love for us in that we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. If while we were sinning, Christ died for us, can we not love those who are sinning against us? If while we were enemies, he sent his son to reconcile the world to himself, can we not reconcile with those who are enemies now? Can we not do the same? considering that it's much lesser things that they've done against us than what we've done against God that he's forgiven. We're far greater enemies of God than he's willing to take us back onto his team. Can we not look out on our enemies and forgive them and love them and stop and pray for them? And that doesn't mean having to think that they're right. God isn't asking you to, to, 
to somehow like create some hodgepodge middle ground, some, something where you give up your standards and somehow don't hold them to theirs. There's no, it's not some compromise thing. You can still believe they're wrong and still love them and pray for them. But do we do that? Like I was talking to Stan in between services, he said most of the time we spend all that time just rehearsing the arguments over and over in our head. We think they're wrong, and so we just keep playing it over in their head. How could they think that? Why would they think that? It's so stupid. And we just keep going around and around instead of just stopping and being like, maybe they're wrong. Okay, so what? Stop. Maybe they really are wrong, but you rehearsing the conversation in your head a million times doesn't make them any righter. Just stop and pray for them. If they really are wrong, they need you to pray for them. They don't know that they're wrong. If they really are your enemy or God's enemy, then stop and pray for them and do your best to love them without giving up your standards or compromises on your side. So we take communion to remember that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He gave his body for people who were using their bodies against him. He gave his blood for those who were using all the energy and life they had to fight against this kingdom. So we can then turn around, take this, receive his forgiveness, and turn around and then extend it and go beyond. Go beyond just our mere duty to our neighbor, but go beyond and look for ways to love people who don't deserve it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son who died for us when we weren't asking, who converted us to being your allies, who in grace continued to send rain and life on us when we didn't deserve it. And even now, you continue to send goodness down on our neighbors, on our enemies. You've asked us to love our neighbor. You've asked us to love our enemies. And oftentimes, they're the same person. Our neighbor is our enemy sometimes. And yet, our duty remains the same, to love them, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, just like you have. Help us in the power of your spirit to forgive those who have hurt us, to pray for those who are still hurting us, to love them enough to love you, to stand true with you, but to extend the best that we can, to live in a world where we'd say yes as often as we can, to go further than we have to because we have a God who went further than he had to. We love you, God. We thank you for the example that you gave us in Jesus of of doing the very thing that you ask us to do. We thank you that since we've fallen short of that, we can take communion and be forgiven for falling short. We can be forgiven for not loving our enemies, for not doing what we ought to do. Help us to receive communion this morning and forgiveness for not doing what we should. Help us to look to you who has loved our enemies and has loved us as your enemy. Help us to follow your example to the best that we can, that we would live in the power of your spirit to the best of our ability for your glory and the good of our neighbor and the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen.